Imagine if you could look into the future. What is it that you would like to know in advance? Perhaps you would really love to know who wins the NRL finals. Or you'd love to see how your grandchild grows up. Or you're perhaps keen to get an inside edge on which direction the property market's going. Perhaps you just want to know if everything will work out. Will my son or daughter be happy in their marriage? Will this illness be cured? Will I have enough money to pay off the mortgage? The future can be exciting, full of possibilities, paths untraveled, all of those cliches. But sometimes the future keeps us awake at night, wondering, worrying, hoping. The prospect of what will come tomorrow can make us feel out of control. It can be a source of dread and anxiety. Our climate anxiety is one particular fear of the future that is becoming an increasingly common issue, especially for young people. Uh, a study released about a year ago revealed that of the 10,000 young people in 10 different countries who they surveyed, 75% said that the future is frightening. Almost 60% said they felt very worried or extremely worried about climate change. And 45% said that their feelings about climate change impacted their daily lives. And sadly, their worry is well-founded. A UNICEF report also last year estimated that one billion children will be at extremely high risk as a result of climate change. Climate change is a real existential threat. The future looks frightening. And this anxiety can be compounded by the fact that governments are inactive or even making things worse. The future can be frightening because there are so many risks and dangers and we just don't know how things will work out. We don't know how the story ends. Although the book of Daniel in the Bible was written in a very different time and culture to our own, fear of the future was a common experience for God's people at that time as well. Uh, life in exile and later back in the land of Judah was dangerous. Israel at that time was a small nation with hardly any military or political power, and so their very existence was at risk, subject to the whims of foreign kings. And in the first half of the book of Daniel, we saw the reality of that rule, didn't we? Kings Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and Darius uh, were all, all powerful rulers. They called the shots, they overthrew cities, they made sometimes ridiculous laws, and they sentenced people to death. But we also saw story after story of courageous Daniel and his friends, boldly trusting God and standing up to opposition from these kings. When Daniel faced the lions, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego survived the fiery furnace, the message was clear. Even in the face of great hostility and opposition, in the end, God's people will triumph through his mighty power. And so when the people of Israel felt fearful about the future, they could look to these stories and take comfort in God's faithfulness to 
his faithful people. But the second half of Daniel is quite different. Uh, Instead of entertaining stories, we have bizarre visions and prophecies full of terrifying beasts, strange symbolism and confusing messages from God. The future looms darker, more threatening. The guarantee that God's people will triumph doesn't come as through as clearly. Chapters 7 to 12 of Daniel are classified as apocalyptic literature, as Mark mentioned earlier. And this is a genre which is rich in metaphor and talks about the end of all things. Perhaps you've heard about uh, cult religions that make predictions about the future and when the world will end based on apocalyptic bits of the Bible like Daniel or Revelation. And even Christians can take these texts the wrong way and think that they give specific details about the end of the world. But that's not the point of apocalyptic literature. These images and metaphors do reveal truth and they evoke powerful emotions in us, but they don't tell us everything. There's also mystery and ambiguity because these are ultimately truths beyond our comprehension. So apocalyptic literature is meant to be ambiguous. It reveals truths beyond our comprehension. We can make some links with what we know and understand, but we're not gonna get details about specific dates or people. So let's keep that in mind as we look at this vision. So chapter 7 is the the first vision or dream that Daniel has in the book. And instead of being uh, the interpreter of dreams from chapter 2 and chapter 4, Daniel is now the dreamer, uncertain of what his dreams mean. Lying in his bed, visions pass through his mind and perhaps woken by the disturbing images, uh, he does what many of us do when thoughts are racing through our heads late at night. He writes them down. So in verse 2, Daniel says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. So Daniel has a dream of a rough, choppy sea stirred up by a stormy gale. As a country surrounded by water, in Australia, we tend to have a healthy respect for the ocean. We flock to it when the weather is sunny and warm, but we know that the ocean can be unpredictable and dangerous. And on a wild and windy day when the waves are 10 metres high, it can be truly terrifying. But the churning sea also had an additional meaning for Daniel and his audience. Uh, To the people of the ancient Near East, the sea was a place of chaos and danger. It was a malevolent force set against the goodness of creation. And so for the original audience, just mentioning the sea evokes feelings of horror and fear. But then things get worse as these four great beasts emerge out of the sea. Perhaps think of it as a bit similar to that stomach drop feeling you'd get if you were just paddling around at the beach 
and all of a sudden you saw a, a fin emerge metres away. And so as I read the description of the first three beasts, uh, see if you can picture what they look like. So the first of the beasts to come up out of the sea was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back, it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads and it was given authority to rule. So notice that all the beasts are only like animals. There are things about them that are slightly off, a bit distorted. First, there's a beast like a lion with eagle's wings that starts to think and look like a human. Sort of animal, but sort of human. Uh, disturbing and unnatural. Then a beast like a bear raised up on its side with three ribs in its mouth. This could mean that it's uh, leaning to one side, eating the ribs of its prey, or it could be a beast with a deformity so that it stands oddly and some of its skeleton is in the wrong place, growing outside of its body. Another unnatural, horrifying creature. And finally, a beast like a leopard, an animal known for its deadly speed, made faster by the addition of four wings and more terrifying because it has four heads to find and attack its prey. And then, if you're not profoundly unsettled already, there's the fourth beast. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the, for from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. And then in verse 19, the fourth beast is most terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beasts that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. So this fourth uh, creature isn't even compared to any animal that we recognise. It's a vague, shape-shifting monster. Its teeth and claws are weapons. It crushes and devours its victims. So there's a lot of speculation about what these beasts and their features mean. And we do find out later that they represent four kings who will rise from the earth. So there's some support for the beasts symbolizing the ancient kingdoms of Babylon, Media, Persia, and Greece. Or if you combine Media and Persia into one kingdom, then the fourth kingdom could be Rome. And while it's tempting to try and deduct the meaning of these beasts and then put it all neatly into a, a little box of reason and certainty, remember, this is apocalyptic literature. 
these images are meant to be strange and ambiguous. So it's impossible to be certain what kings are being talked about. And in the end, the point of these visions isn't to tell us history in advance or recount it after the fact. Rather, the point of these terrifying beasts is to terrify us. And as strange and unsettling as this vision is, it's also one that resonates with our experience of life, especially for those who live under the power of tyrannical regimes. If you are reading Daniel chapter 7 in Myanmar, North Korea or Afghanistan, perhaps this vision wouldn't seem quite so strange. Even in Australia, some First Nations people will experience this kind of oppression and fear when they encounter government authorities. These four beasts reflect the reality of government violence and oppression and validate the experience of those who suffer under it. And not only that, but this vision also shapes our expectation for the future. So I was scrolling on my phone the other day and I saw this headline from the New York Times with the headline, this has been the best year ever. Uh, the year was 2019. So considering the three years we've had since then, maybe it was a bit of a prophetic statement. But we're an optimistic bunch, us humans, aren't we? In the mid 20th century, particularly, it was a pretty common belief that in the course of history, things were getting better and better. And with scientific and medical advances and increased education and compassion, there was real hope for a utopia heaven on earth. Uh, but just looking around at the state of our world can put a reality check on that optimism. We're experiencing increasingly devastating weather events caused by the climate crisis. Species are going extinct at an accelerating rate. Powerful narcissistic leaders posture and threaten global war. There's been a worldwide pandemic. Wouldn't it be nice to look into the future and see the war in Ukraine resolved peacefully and justly? To see the effects of COVID settle down? To see scientific advances leading to more natural energy sources? But even if we got resolution to all these problems, the reality is there will always be something else. Something else that'll uh, something else that we can fear, that we will fear. Something else to make us anxious. The beasts in Daniel's vision remind us of the power and violence of human authorities, but the fourth beast, shape-shifting and terrifying, is the worst of all. It reminds us that in the course of history, things aren't getting better. There will always be something else. Daniel 7 confirms our experience of life and shapes our expectations for what's to come. The future is dark and threatening. And just like Daniel, we can be kept awake at night, worried about what the future will hold. But there's, there's more still. Uh, str another strange detail that we have in this vision is the little horn. 
So on the fourth beast, there are 10 horns, as we read, and then an additional little horn that uproots three of the existing horns as it emerges. And just like the bizarre hybrid beast, this horn doesn't act like a normal horn. It has eyes, like the eyes of a human, and a mouth that speaks boastfully. In verse 21, the horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them, and with its unnatural mouth. In verse 25, the horn will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times and half a time. So this little horn will do violence to God's people holding devastating power over them, and he will arrogantly try to overthrow the God of the universe. And for a time, it'll seem like he has succeeded. This vision came to pass in the second century BC at the time of Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who was a king of ancient Greece. Antiochus outlawed traditional Jewish practices like reading the book of the law, keeping the Sabbath and food laws and offering sacrifices in the temple. And those Jews who stood up to this Greek superpower were persecuted and often killed. And although that historical event was one fulfillment of the vision, it isn't the only one. Just like the Jews under Antiochus faced oppression and violence for following God, Christians throughout history have also faced oppression and violence for following God. Right now, persecution of Christians is the most widespread and intense that it's ever been, with Christianity recognised as the most persecuted religion in the world. The future is dark and threatening, and that is especially the case for those who follow God. And in Daniel, God tells us to prepare for this, to be ready that we might suffer for following him. Although in this country our government doesn't officially target Christians, that doesn't mean we won't suffer for our faith. In fact, we're to expect it. Daniel chapter 7 reflects our experience of life and shapes our expectations of the future. Uh, But that's not the end of the story. So I still remember where I was when I heard the ending of the fifth Harry Potter book. So I was in high school at the time, so Harry Potter was a big deal. And usually I read the books as soon as they came out. So within a day or two, I was a, I am a massive book nerd. Uh, but the fifth one, I think I had my HSC trials on or something. And so I'd started reading, but I hadn't finished yet. And one day I was sitting on the bus coming home from school and I heard some other school kids blurt out a few words that revealed to me the end of the book. I won't give it away. I mean, if you haven't read Harry Potter by now, then you want to, you should have. (laughs) Uh, But for me, the story was spoiled because I knew the end. What's what, what people will sometimes call a spoiler. And reading Daniel, we get a spoiler for how things will end. Things look bad. The future is dark and threatening. There will always be something else to fear 
and we should expect to suffer for following God. But at the centre of Daniel's vision, drawing our attention, is a poem, a spoiler of what's to come. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. The imagery here is rich, evocative of hundreds of other Old Testament passages. Thrones are set in place, picturing the heavenly law court, the place of God's rule and judgment. The person who is advanced, uh, uh, ancient of days, sorry, which is advanced in years, someone who's elderly, with white hair like wool, representing God in his wisdom and knowledge. He seats himself on a throne of flames with a river of fire under it, fire symbolising God's judgement. And the throne has wheels on it, showing that he can go anywhere. His authority extends across the whole world as he sees and judges everything rightly. And he's attended by countless thousands. This is the host of heaven, celestial beings who attend God as the books are opened and the judgment begins. And the one being judged is the arrogant horn who oppressed God's people and the fourth beast who destroyed and trampled. And verse 11 tells us what the sentence is. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire, the fire of God's judgment. Although the horn and the beast appear to have ultimate power and authority for a time, in a few brief lines it becomes clear who's really in control. God Most High allows the beast to have power for a, little, for a limited period of time, and then he ends it. And then in verse 13, the poem is continued. Uh, although in our English Bibles it isn't set out in short lines like the previous part of the poem, so I've restructured it on this slide so that we can appreciate the poetry. So in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. In a deeply mysterious chapter, this is one of the most cryptic parts of Daniel chapter 7, especially from an Old Testament perspective. Son of man is a Hebrew idiom used for a human, so he's not necessarily a divine figure, except for the fact that he's coming with the clouds of heaven, uh, which is something only God does in Old Testament imagery. 
This son of man is then brought into God's presence and given all authority, glory, and sovereign power. So what's going on here? Uh, Perhaps another part of this chapter can give us a hint. So verse 18 says that the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. So just like the Son of Man is given authority and his own kingdom, the holy people are also given the kingdom. Although we don't quite know how, by God's intervention, his holy people will go from being oppressed and defeated to being victorious and receiving the kingdom, perhaps through a mediator like this son of man. In the context of the Old Testament, it's all a bit hazy and ambiguous. There is comfort for God's people that even though the future is dark and threatening, and there is certainty that God will give them victory. Uh, But there's not a lot of detail about how that will actually play out. But we've got the spoilers. The Son of Man was Jesus' favourite name to refer to himself in the Gospels, uh, the four books that tell us about Jesus' life, death and resurrection. And the Son of Man is a name that conveys Jesus' humanity, but also that he's God. He's the one who will come with the clouds of heaven to judge the world and bring an end to tyranny and violence. And we've also got the spoilers from Revelation chapter 1, which tells us about John the Apostle's vision of one like a son of man, with hair white like wool, eyes like blazing fire. Using images that describe God throughout the Bible, John describes Jesus. It's valid to be fearful and anxious about the future. There are stormy seas and terrifying beasts But then there's Jesus, the Son of Man who invites us to come to him. We have the spoilers for how it all ends because we know Jesus, the one who gently places his hand on us like he did to John in Revelation and reassures us, saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. The future can look dark and threatening. There will always be something else to fear, and we should expect to suffer as God's people. Daniel 7 reflects our experience of life and shapes our expectations for the future. But God reassures us of his authority over all earthly powers and his love for his people. We know how the story ends. We have the spoilers. But knowing the end doesn't spoil things at all, does it? It's the exact opposite. Knowing how it all ends gives us comfort and courage because not even death can defeat the living one. And he offers us life as well, forever and ever. Well, let's stand and sing now to our Lord Jesus, the living one, uh, in Christ alone.